This is the record God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this uh, morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to, to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word this morning. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it is by your word, your word which is absolute truth, that we are sanctified under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, get a greater appreciation for your work in history and who you are and what your plans are for the future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We have already studied the first three verses which deal with the prologue. If we structure the first chapter, we, the first three verses are the prologue to the, uh, to the book, which give us foundational information that this is the revelation or apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. It is not about Jesus Christ. Well, that's not how you interpret that phrase. It, the book is about Jesus Christ, but it is from Jesus Christ, His revelation to us of future events. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to display or to exhibit to His servants or slaves which must, things which must shortly take place. And he communicated it by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written in it, for the time is near. That's the prologue. That's our warning. The time is near. Now, that doesn't mean that at the, that it was going to happen within a short period of time from the time it was written. The word there translated near is ingus, which has the idea of imminency. And we studied the doctrine of imminency the first hour in relation to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, 50 to 52, that Jesus Christ can come back at any moment. No prophecy need be fulfilled before Jesus Christ returns at the rapture. There is nothing to look forward to other than our blessed hope, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first three verses give us a blessing. There is a blessing to those 
who even today read this, it may not even, the events of Revelation may not transpire for another 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, or 1,000 years. Frankly, I do not believe the Lord will tarry that long. I think His coming is soon. But that is simply an opinion. The Scriptures do not indicate that whatsoever. But there is a blessing even for those who do not see these things take place. The Scripture says, Blessed is he who who reads, that is the exposition of the text, the exegetical teaching of the book of Revelation, and those who hear the words and keep all the things that are in it. There is a warning here to be ready, to be prepared, for the Lord can return at any moment. The time is near. And then in verse 4, we have the introduction to the book of Revelation. The introduction uh, covers the rest of the first chapter. There is a salutation in verses 4 through 8. And then there is an introduction to the first vision, the vision that John sees that sets up the remainder of this book. Verses 4 through 8 are a phenomenal revelation and dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a Trinitarian uh, salutation and dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 6. And the what happens so often if we get into these eight or these four verses without doing a proper overview, we can lose sight of the forest for the trees. What we see in this chapter, and we will see this again in different chapters in Revelation, where if you take so much time dealing with the details of each word and each phrase and each clause in exegesis, you lose some of the impact of the whole. And so I want to make sure that when we get into these sections that we take the time to just just get a sense of the impact here. This is a vision in some... The vision doesn't occur until verse uh, verse 9. But what we see pictured here is the Trinity in a profound way. John begins by saying, Grace to you and peace from He who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the, one, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us a kingdom priest to His God and Father. To Him, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. I am He who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is the opening salutation of this book. Now, there's a lot to cover in those verses. Some of you noticed as I read through the King James or New King James translation that there were a few differences between the New King James and New American Standard if you were using it or New International Version. We have to deal with those. There's a number of other things we have to clarify in this section to make sure we properly understand what the reference is to. But I don't want us to lose 
the forest for the trees in this tremendous uh, presentation of the Trinity. For that is what we have here, a, a dedication or a salutation from the Trinity. It begins in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven churches is the Greek word ekklesia. It's a feminine dative plural here indicating more than one. There are seven churches and the word ekklesia can refer to an assembly or a meeting but it is used in a technical sense in the New Testament to refer to a gathering of believers. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have put their faith alone in Christ alone uh, and at the instant of salvation have been identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's called the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And so they are in the body of Christ. The word church is used in two senses in the Bible. Uh, it is used in the sense of a local church, which refers to a gathering of believers in a local assembly. And then it is also used of the universal church, which is the body of Christ. This is the sometimes called the, the mystical body of Christ. It is the, the body of Christ made up of all believers of all time, dead and alive. Every single believer, uh, no matter what their denominational or local church affiliation might be, but every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is part of the universal body of Christ. But not every member of a local church is a member of the body of Christ. Because not every member of a local church is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many churches in this country and in, around the world that do not have a biblical view of who Christ is or a biblical view of salvation. And so there are many churches that are filled with people who come week after week who are not saved. They've never put their faith alone in Christ alone. And then there are other churches like Preston City Bible Church where I would imagine nearly everyone here is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved. So we are not only members of the local church, but we are members of the universal church, that is, the body of Christ. So we have to distinguish between those two uses of ecclesia. And here we have a the use of the local church. Seven local churches which are in Asia. And here is a map showing the location of these seven churches. The Asia that is referred to here is not the Asia that most of you have in mind. When you think of Asia, you think of the Far East. You think of India, uh, China, Japan, Southeast Asia. But in the ancient world, Asia referred to a, originally referred to a province, a Roman province on the western shore of what is now modern Turkey. And Asia was a proconsular province and the capital of Asia was the city of Ephesus. It was a port at that time. It no longer is because of silting from the river so that the, I believe the uh, shoreline is actually some 20 or 25 miles away from where the uh, ancient city of Ephesus was located. But Ephesus is the first of these seven churches that are identified down in verse 9, uh, or excuse me, in verse uh, 11, that these churches, these letters would go to Ephesus, 
to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And the order of the churches is always the same and starts in the left-hand corner and proceeds clockwise going to the north, to Smyrna, then Sardis, then Pergamum, Thyatira, uh, excuse me, goes from Ephesus to Smyrna, then it goes to Pergamum and Thyatira, then to Sardis, then to Philadelphia, and last to Laodicea. John is writing from the island of Patmos, which is described in verse 9, that he was on the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of, of Turkey, about uh, 30 or 40 miles or so from Ephesus. I'll give you a better analysis of the geography in about three weeks. This time next week, I will be uh, doing a little fact-finding in Greece and Turkey as we take a little trip with uh, Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice to retrace Paul's second missionary journey. And, of course, you're not going to go over there with the author of Left Behind without going to the Isle of Patmos to see where John wrote Revelation. So that should be a fun, fact-filled trip. And it's coming at a good time because when I get back, we'll start getting into the seven letters to these seven churches, and this will be good background for no background investigation for this study. But these are the seven churches, and we will study much about them in the next several months because this is the subject of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 are the specific letters to each of these congregations, short letters, what we would call postcards. So John is addressing this to the seven churches that are in Asia, not just each of the individual uh, postcards to the churches in Asia, but the whole book of Revelation is written to the group of seven churches that are in the proconsular province of Asia. He starts with a familiar salutation, one that we frequently see in the epistles of Paul. Grace to you and peace. This is a, the opening salutation. The first word is grace. The Greek word is charis. This is the, the standard Greek, or it's based on the standard Greek greeting of charain. If you were, you know, if you walk down the street as an American, you see somebody, you say hello, or how are you doing, or what's up, or something like that, and that's our standard greeting. In Greek, you would say charain. But Paul probably originated the shift, and he made a slight modification and instead of beginning a letter with Karain, he began it with Karis, grace, emphasizing the unmerited favor of God, the unearned love of God. And he always emphasizes that this is from God. So there is always an, a clause indicating the ultimate source of grace, which is from God the Father and the Trinity. Grace emphasizes all that God has done for us in our lives, all that God has done for us in our salvation. He says, grace to you. And the you is in a dative case and what is called in, uh, grammatically a dative of advantage. It indicates that this is for your benefit. This is for your advantage, for you to pay attention to what's in this letter. We've already seen the 
benediction, the blessing given in verse 3, that blessed is he who reads or exposits the word and those who hear. And then he follows that up by saying grace to you and then peace. Peace is the Greek word arene. And this is the based on the standard Jewish greeting. Whenever two Jews would meet each other, they would say shalom, which is the Hebrew for peace. And peace also comes from uh, God. Grace comes from God, and because of God's grace in providing a Savior for us, we have the free gift of justification by faith alone. And in Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace both have their ultimate source in the Trinity. Grace to you and peace. And then we get into a very interesting clause. From Him who is and who was and who is to come. The first word is the Greek preposition apo, translated from, and it indicates the ultimate source. Of something, and this is repeated three times. The threefold repetition of Apo indicates three distinct persons in the Trinity. If there was only one person, you might have one Apo, and then each of these descriptions might relate to the same person. The threefold repetition of Apo indicates a threefold repetition related to each member of the Trinity. This is a Trinitarian introduction. There is peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. This is the phrase, Him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, when you first look at that, you have to ask the question, who to whom does this refer? Does this refer to God the Father or does this refer to Jesus Christ? Well, if we take a look at this, we might think it refers to Jesus Christ. If you look over at verse 8, you have a repetition of this phrase. Verse 8 reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you have the insertion of the phrase, the beginning and the end after that. That is only found in what's called the TR. It is not found either in the critical text or in the Byzantine text, which is the majority uh, majority text. So therefore, it is not in any of the better manuscripts. So if you have a King James or New King James, you need to run a line through that phrase, the beginning and the end in verse 8, because it's not in the original. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. That's important to indicate that. And the King James leaves out God, but it's clear that in the majority text... The God is there, and the term Lord God in the New Testament primarily refers to God the Father. So we read God the Father speaking. It's indicated by the phrase Lord God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Same phrase that we have in verse 4. But see, right before verse 8, we have uh, John talking about Christ's coming at the second coming. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. 
Even so, amen. Obviously, that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when it moves into the next verse, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, we automatically want to associate that with Jesus Christ. And in fact, in verse 11, when Jesus Christ appears to John on the island of Patmos, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And so we see that that is the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to him. So we want to take this title Alpha and Omega and apply that to Jesus Christ. Are you confused yet? You've got to do technical work here to figure all this out, or you'll really start assigning the wrong phrases to the wrong person of the Trinity. And that's not easy because if we think about the Trinity, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Everything that you can ascribe to the Son, you can also ascribe to the Father. Everything you can ascribe to the Father can also be ascribed to the Son. So the title Alpha and Omega is applied here to both the Father and the Son. It's not distinct to the Son. The reason I say that is in verse 8, where we have the phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, when you have the Almighty following the phrase who is and who was and who is to come, the phrase the Almighty only refers, it's the Greek word patokrator, and it only refers to uh, God the Father. It does not refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to identify uh, those particular passages. Hold your place here and let's turn over just a couple of chapters to Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. There we read, okay, maybe, um, let me see, there we read, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, 24 elders fell down, oh, I'm in chapter 5, 4, 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, to whom does that refer? That refers to God the Father, because in the context, the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet appeared. He does not appear until chapter 5, verse 6, and He appears as the Lamb. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So we have to recognize that verse 8, when they're singing this praise to God, they're praising God the Father. So when you have this threefold description, who is, who was, and who is to come, associated with the Almighty, that's talking about God the Father, for He is clearly distinguished from the Lamb in chapters 4 and 5. Then if you turn over a couple of more chapters to Revelation chapter 11, verse 17. 
we see a similar situation. This takes place after the seventh trumpet. And it's again a scene in heaven. Verse 16, 11, 16, And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. And the context there indicates that they are falling on the uh, falling down before God the Father. This is uh, He is distinguished from the Messiah. Uh, verse 15 shows that distinction. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Their Lord refers to God the Father. Christ refers to the Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. So we see again that distinction between the Father and the Lamb. And the Father is called the Almighty and the one who is and who was and who is to come. And one other place that that mentions this same phraseology is in Revelation 16.5, which again indicates that the one who is and who was and who is to come is God the Father. Okay, let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. We have to work our way through these uh, passages very carefully. The one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, this phrase in the Greek has some interesting aspects to it. The first description is the one who is. And this is the present active participle of the to-be verb, ami. E-I-M-I. And it has an article with it. Now, whenever a participle has an article, in Greek it's going to function more like a noun than a verb, so that means it's an adjective or it is a, a substantive. It's a ty- uh, it is referring to a person. So it should be translated the one uh, who is. And since it's the existential verb, that is, it's a verb talking about existing, it's the one who is existing. It's present tense. It's the one who is continually existing in present time. So we have an article plus a participle. Then when we look at the second description, we have, again, the repetition of that article. You see the, the what well, looks to you like an O with the rough breathing mark over it, transliterated H-O. That's your definite article. But this time, it is associated with a finite verb. You don't put an article with a finite verb. This is, this is, it's not that it's bad grammar, it's not typical. Why do you do, why would you put an article with a finite verb? And the reason you would do that, or the reason John does that, and the reason this is this way, is not because it's bad grammar, but because this entire phrase represents a name. This is a title. Therefore, the entire title must be treated in a different way than, than normal sentence Grammar. And here we have a definite article used as a, as a relative pronoun again, the one who was. And we have a finite verb, the imperfect active indicative of the same verb, a me. And one of the reasons that this is written this way is because there's no, there really isn't another way grammatically to express the idea that John wants to express, and that is continual existence in past time. This is the same idea you have in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the, uh, the verb translated was theirs, the imperfect active indicative of a me, and we have translated that in the beginning. Uh, the word was continually existing in past time. So to get continuous existence in past time, John has to use the imperfect indicative. He can't use, in, there's no participle that can express continuous existence in past time. So he's innovative. He says the one who is and the one who was. That is the one who always existed or the one who continuously existed in past time, emphasizing again his eternality. And then the third term is the one who is coming. The one who what, who is and who was, and the one who is coming. It is a present, uh, it's a middle passive participle. It's uh, what's called a deponent verb, which, has, which means it has a passive form, but an active meaning. So it should be translated to come. It is the basic word meaning to come or to move from one point to another. And the emphasis is on the movement itself, the coming. So he is the one uh, to come, erkomai, E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I. And we should translate the one who is coming, present tense. But you see the emphasis of this present tense is future. He is coming. There's an air of expectancy here. He is the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Now, if you're thinking this morning, you're scratching your head and you're saying, well, Jesus Christ the Son is the one who's coming, not the Father. So how can we say that this title fits the Father? Well, there's, as I've pointed out, exegetically in terms of the way this phrase is used throughout Revelation, it always refers to the Father. Second, it is clearly a Trinitarian statement indicating the threefold source of this revelation is from the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. But something happens at the end of Revelation that is uh, very informative. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of what John says in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, the first chapter, John says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God has revealed Him. Point No person has ever, ever seen God the Father face to face. Jesus Christ the Son is the revealer of the the Father. So down through history, all that the human race has seen has been the revealer of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Eden, it was the pre-incarnate Christ who appeared to Adam and Eve. It was the pre-incarnate Christ who uh, walked with Enoch. It was the pre-incarnate Christ who was with Moses on Sinai. It's the pre-incarnate Christ who was the Lord of the armies who gave Israel victory over their enemies. It's the pre-incarnate Christ who gave revelation to the prophets in the Old Testament. No man has seen God at any time. But in Revelation chapter 21, there will be a change. In Revelation chapter chapter 21... Verse 3 we read, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold the tabernacle of God, this is of God the Father. Behold the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their, their God, 
And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so what we see here is a, that there will be a revelation of God the Father, and we will see, we will personally see God the Father. In verse, uh, in chapter 22, verse 4, we're told, they shall see his face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. So we will see God the Father. There is a coming of God the Father in Revelation. We see it in Revelation 21 and 24. Not only is there a reference to Jesus Christ as the second person coming, who is coming at the second advent, but there is this coming of God the Father as seen in Revelation 21, verse 3, and Revelation 22, verse 4. So this reference is to, uh, uh, back in Revelation 1-4, the one who is and was and who is to come, is a reference to God the Father. This answers the question of who is coming. It is the Father. The Son is coming also, but at this place, this title can refer and legitimately refers to the Father. Another line of evidence is seen in the preposition in the next phrase. The epistle is all, or, or the, uh, the book, the apocalypse, is also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And the word before here is the Greek preposition enopios, E-N-O-P-I-O-S. And it means to be before or in front of the throne. So whose throne is it? It's just said to be His throne. Is this the Father's throne, or is it the Son's throne? And one thing that you should pay attention to here is that there are certain Christians who teach that Jesus Christ is even now on the throne of David in heaven. And this is taught not only by amillennialists, and this is typical of covenant theology because there's a spiritual form of the kingdom, it's been the kingdom has now been shifted from a literal kingdom given to Israel. This is in their theology, from a literal kingdom given to Israel to a spiritual kingdom in heaven. But nowhere in Revelation did Jesus Christ sit on his own throne. You can trace the use of the word thronos throughout Revelation, and it's always the Father's throne. I just want you to go to one uh, one passage. As we look at his throne, one passage, Revelation 3:21. Revelation 3:21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. So if you stop there, it looks like Jesus is then sitting on his throne. But he goes on to say, As I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Now, right now, Jesus Christ is in session. That's the word that is used, session. And it comes from the Latin word, sessionum, which refers to the seating of Christ. When Christ ascended to heaven, he was seated at his Father's right hand. And so the last part of verse 21 is talking about the session that Jesus sat down with his Father where? 
on His Father's throne. He is still seated on His Father's throne. He does not receive His throne, as we saw in our look at Matthew 25 in the uh, sheep and goat judgment this morning in the first hour. He doesn't get His throne until He returns in glory at the second coming. That is when He gets His throne, the throne of David in Jerusalem. So right now He's not on His throne. He is on the Father's throne. So when we look at, 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 at Revelation 1-4, and it says the spirits who are before His throne, that His can only be in reference to God the Father. It can't be talking about Jesus Christ's throne. So He is seated on... Uh, so, so Revelation 1-4 is talking about The Father. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, the second part of this introduction mentions the seven spirits who are before his throne. And there's a lot of discussion as to who these seven spirits are and why seven spirits. There are some who suggest that the seven spirits must be a reference to angels. Because why would you refer to the Holy Spirit as seven spirits? And one reason this would not be angels is because you have a, uh, an indication that this revelation comes from God the Father and God the Son, clearly bracket the seven spirits who are before His throne. You wouldn't include angels in a, in, in a uh, de- description of the Father and the Son where the middle element would be angels. Revelation doesn't proceed from angels, it proceeds from God. And the specific member of the Trinity who's responsible for Revelation is the Holy Spirit. So, even though the term seven spirits is an unusual phrase, it is a phrase that, the, that is used in Revelation on a couple of occasions to describe the Holy Spirit. But... From whence does that description come? Now, most people think that, or many people, I won't say most, many people think that it goes back to a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And I have taught this in the past, although I have never really been satisfied with this. Uh, I think there is a better explanation. So let's turn first to Isaiah 11, so we can note the problems there, and then we will... Uh, try to present a superior uh, understanding of this. Isaiah 11 is a messianic passage. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 is a messianic passage. Isaiah 11, 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, using the analogy of a tree. And the stem of Jesse refers to David's father. David was the son of Jesse. And so this is coming from the uh, stem of Jesse, which goes through David, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So once again, it is identifying the fact that the Messiah comes within that Davidic line. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So the Spirit of the Lord in the first 
phrase of verse 2 refers to the Holy Spirit indwelling and empowering the Messiah. The Holy Spirit was the power source for Jesus Christ during the Incarnation. And we just finished studying this in our study of, of the, the uh, basics on Christology. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He was indwelt from birth by God the Holy Spirit, and He was empowered by God the Holy Spirit in setting the precedence for the spiritual life of the church age. This doesn't mean that everything that Jesus did was through the Holy Spirit, because He did some things in the power of His own deity to demonstrate that He was God. For example, stilling the storm, indicating His sovereignty over uh, the elements of meteorology, and which, which would go back to the flood, identifying himself with the God who could send such a horrendous flood as that which came at Noah's time. He stills the flood. He changes the water into wine, indicating that he's a creator. He is able to instantly uh, change uh, water into a completely different kind of substance, and that is wine. He did some things in his own power, but he did many of his miracles, and he handled every problem and difficulty and temptation and test from relying upon the Holy Spirit. That's what sets the precedent for the church-age Christian life. See, when he changed the water into wine and when he stilled the storm, he wasn't doing that to solve a personal problem or test in his life. He was doing that to demonstrate who he was. But when he faced a test, such as the temptations in the wilderness... He handled it by the Word of God and relying upon the Holy Spirit. When his personal spiritual life was the issue, he handles it through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then the Spirit of the Lord is broken down into different manifestations or qualities in the rest of this verse. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now, when you get to these, the last three clauses, spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, you have the same word, uh, ruach, that's used of the spirit of the Lord. But those aren't autonomous personalities. The spirit of the Lord is an autonomous personality. That's the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit of God that hovered over the waters in Genesis 1-2. It's the Holy Spirit. But the spirit of wisdom isn't a separate entity. Okay? Now follow me. The spirit of the Lord manifests himself with wisdom and understanding, with counsel and might, and with knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Three sets of two added up. Three times two is six. You only have six manifestations there. The spirit of the Lord is the person. It's not the same category. You don't have... The uh, Spirit of the Lord isn't to be identified with the list of the other six. He is the Spirit of the Lord manifesting Himself as wisdom and understanding, as counsel and might, as knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So you only have six there. You don't have seven. The only way you can get seven is to uh, include the t- that, that title, Spirit of the Lord, as part of the other six. But that's, but it, that's a categorically different uh, title. It's a different nomenclature. That is who he is, and the next six are what he manifests. So you don't have seven there. You only have six. Now, you'll look at a number of, of commentators, such as John Walver, a number, number of other dispensationalists, 
go to Isaiah 11 as the basis for understanding the seven spirits in Revelation. But I think there is a better understanding. Now, to do this, I want you to... um, Well, you're going to have to look at a couple of different passages. You need to stick your finger in Revelation 5. Revelation 4 and 5, actually. And you're going to also turn to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. Now, if we were having sword drill, most of you would probably lose. You need to learn the books of your Bible so you can get there. Zechariah is one of the twelve minor prophets at the close of the Old Testament. It's the next to last book in the Old Testament right before the Italian prophet. You know, there's one Italian prophet. His name's Malachi. <laughs> Zechariah. And we have a vision given in Zechariah chapter 4. Verses 1 through 10. The vision of the lampstand, the olive trees, and there's a parallelism between Zechariah 4 and Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Now, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5 mentions that from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. And then you look down in verse 6 of chapter 5, and we read, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this gives us a connection between the seven spirits of God, who's related to the the seven lamps and the seven eyes, which indicates omniscience and knowledge, and that these are sent out into all the earth. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 4. We look at Zechariah chapter 4, and uh, I'll just start reading the first verse. Now, the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And so I said, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Now, where have we seen seven lamps? There are seven lamps who are identified as the seven spirits of God in Revelation 5, verse 6. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. And I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God. So the seven lamps and the seven pipes, this whole vision with the oil and the lamps burning, is tied in verse 6 to the Holy Spirit. It is indicating that the oil that gives the fire is analogous to the Holy Spirit, the relationship of He's the one who gives power in the spiritual life. It's not by might nor my power, but my my spirit, says the Lord. And then just skip down to verse 
Verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So we see a connection between the seven lamps, the Holy Spirit in verse 6, and the seven eyes in Zechariah 4.10. So the term seven spirits is a description of the fullness of, of the Spirit's ministry. Now, this use of the term seven introduces to us, we had it with the seven churches, it introduces to us what is called biblical numerology. Now, this isn't the kind of numerology you get with the mystics and astrologers, but this is a recognition that numbers in Scripture have more significance than simply their literal value. Now, last week I talked about the fact that in Scripture we believe in literal interpretation. So the numbers have to be taken literally. There's seven spirits. It's not just you don't divorce it from from its literary value. What we see in the Bible, or what we see in hermeneutics, let's say, is a difference between uh, the literal use of numbers with a symbolic value versus allegory. In allegory, the literal aspect has no value whatsoever. In fact, in allegory, the literal doesn't happen. It isn't literal. There is no such thing as a literal uh, meaning to the passage at all. The numbers are merely symbolic. But in literal interpretation, there are 144,000 Jews, but that 144,000 also has a may have a symbolic va- value. There are seven churches. There are literally seven churches. Count them up. There were seven churches in those seven. Uh, towns and cities in Asia. But the number seven also has a symbolic value, and the number seven has the number of fullness or completion. So when we look at that, we see that these seven represent the fullness of something, a complete picture, and that the Holy Spirit provides the sufficiency of uh, revelation to us. He is sufficient in his role as the restrainer of evil which is covered in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2 as well. So that is the picture that is given. You, to understand the seven spirits of God, we have to compare that with, with, his, with what's said about the seven spirits in Revelation 4 and 5 and how that is based on that imagery given in the vision in Zechariah 4, 1 through 10. So what we see in Revelation 1, 4 is the, that this derives from the ultimate source of God the Father who is and who was and who is to come. And incidentally, it's interesting that in some ancient manuscripts there is an insertion of the noun theos into that first clause for clarification. So some early scribe understood that somebody's going to get this confused. So I'm just going to clarify and write God in here so people understand that the one who is and who was and who is to come is the Almighty. But that is not in the original text. Obviously, some scribe just wanted to insert that for clarification. So we have uh, uh, the salutation, greeting, and that the book is from God the Father, who is eternal, and whom we will eventually see, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then third, it is from Jesus Christ who is described three ways. He is, first of all, the faithful witness, second, the firstborn from the dead, and third, he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. 
And this, these three phrases are pregnant with meaning. And they, the first two are utilized in the Old Testament in Psalm 89. And before we can do a, get a complete understanding of how these titles are used in, in Revelation here, we're going to have to go back and do a little study in Revelation 89. And we don't have time to do that this morning, so we'll save that for next time. But this is the picture that, that John is giving us, is that this epistle comes from the Trinity, this threefold representation of God. That he, the first person of the Trinity is eternal, the one who is and who was and who is to come. The second person is emphasized in terms of his ministry in relationship to omniscience and his work in human history because he is, as the seven spirits of God and the, and the seven eyes of God goes to and fro throughout the whole earth. And then the third person who is the one who performed uh, our redemption and who saved us and who was raised from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. And we will come back to study that next, or not next week, in about three weeks after I return from my fact-finding tour of uh, Asia Minor and Greece with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning, this opportunity to uh, be reminded of who you are, that you are the eternal God, and that God the Father has never revealed himself to us, but he will, and we will see him face to face in the millennial kingdom and afterward in the eternal state. Father, we do thank you for all that you have provided for us in our salvation. We pray that you would guide and direct us in our understanding of your word, especially as we study through Revelation. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right where you sit, all you need to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to simply trust him for your salvation. He did all the work on the cross, and we do nothing. You just simply trust or rely upon him for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.